are all references in the New Testament, in the book of Acts, as to the preaching and teaching of the early Christians, saying that he was alive, he was risen, uh, he is alive, he lives now, he lives on, and so on. So it was the central message of the early church, that Jesus was alive, that he was victorious, that he was victorious because he was alive, because God brought him to life, uh, because he vindicated his sacrifice. And Christianity stands or falls on the reality of the resurrection. It's either what it is, it's what it set claims to be, or it is nothing more than a fantasy. Um, as uh, Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 15, if there is no resurrection of the dead, if there isn't one, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, if he's not been raised, our preaching is useless and so is your faith. I don't think it means useless as in style. Uh, maybe our preaching sometimes can be useless, but not that. But the content of it, the reality of what we're preaching about Jesus as being raised from the dead is useless. <clears throat> and so is our faith. Without the resurrection, we cannot adequately explain the existence of the church. Where did it come from if, as Paul says in, in, um, in 1 Corinthians 15 again, if I fought wild beasts in Ephesus with no more than human hopes. What have I gained? What was the point? If the dead are not raised, rather than go through these tough trials that he went through and many Christians have gone through in time, over, over history, if the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. So how, how, what explains the, the, the courage, the commitment and the uh, perseverance of the early church. Uh, only the resurrection, in my opinion, explains it. Um, we see here in our next passage, we're going to go through a few here and then focus on something in a moment. As Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, and he wrote this very early, this is written in the 50s AD, so, so very early on, he's writing this to a church, and he says, what I received I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures, he was buried, and that he was raised. That he was raised on the third day, according to the scriptures. He appeared to Cephas, which means Peter, that's Peter the Apostle Peter, then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500. More than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time. So not one after the other, or a couple here, a couple there, but 500 in a group most of whom still are living, though some have fallen asleep, by which he means they've died. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, he appeared to me also, Paul writing here, as to one abnormally born. You see, you've got to ask the question, um, if Paul's writing this, why would he write something so extraordinarily, uh, well, something so easy to debunk? If he says that these people are still alive, then you've got to be able to produce them. So we don't have enough time between the, the resurrection happening and, um, and the formation of Christianity for a legend to appear. There's not enough time for it to become something uh, out of nothing. There has to be a reality here going on. Uh, when a conspiracy is, conspiracy is formed, if it was a conspiracy that Jesus was raised from the dead, then three motivating factors have to be in place. Those are power, greed... Um, or you could say lust, a lust after something. And the disciples achieved none of those things by preaching the risen Christ. They achieved no power. 
They achieve no financial reward. They achieve nothing of any value in, in the eyes of most people of this world by preaching and teaching that Jesus has risen from the dead. Instead, they were vilified, they were persecuted, many of them were killed. So we have to explain all of this. And truthfully, only a resurrected Jesus makes sense of it. I haven't yet heard of a better explanation for the existence of the church and the preaching of the early church and the fact that Jesus rose from the dead. Not that he came back to life, but that, not that he was resuscitated, but that he was raised to a new life. Life, death, human life like we have, but with that quality of eternal life in it, which we have begun to enjoy, but will enjoy more fully in the future. So I don't think we're left with any other option than that the, to, to, to accept that the early Christians believed in the resurrection. They believed in it. Um, and they didn't see it as a, a fairy tale, but a fact. They treated the resurrection as a fact as much as we are standing here and talking and listening today. That's how they saw it. Paul, the writer Paul here, doesn't give us the option of it being metaphorical. And the likelihood of them being mistaken is beyond fanciful. They either knew he rose from the dead or they did not. So what are we to make of this? Well, uh, facts like this are only part of the story. It's the impact on people that I think is really the point in many ways. And so we're going to look at the impact on one person today and then draw out some helpful things, I hope, for us. And then we'll take communion together. And what we're going to look at is the Apostle Paul. So have a look in Acts chapter 26. That's where we're going next. Have a look in Acts chapter 26, and we're going to spend most of the rest of our time here. Now, here we have the Apostle Paul. Uh, what do the preteens know about the Apostle Paul? You guys want to tell me anything you know about the Apostle Paul? Put you on the spot, I know. So what do we know about the Apostle Paul? Preteens have anything? I'll, let, I'll come back to you, give you time to think. Simon? He was Saul, became Paul. He persecuted the early church. Something? Was he the one that changed when he got a vision from God? Correct. He got a vision. That's right. He got a blinding vision from God. Exactly. So, and he became an extraordinary... He went from a persecutor of Christianity to a proponent of Christianity and preached the word all over the place and started churches everywhere. And at some point, he goes to Jerusalem. Now, Jerusalem is a dodgy place for him to go because he's going to be recognized and he's likely to be picked up by the authorities and, and have a tough time. But he goes to Jerusalem, takes some money for poor Christians because he, he really cares about them. And he goes there, and we pick up the story after his arrest. He's now been arrested. And um, uh, he has a number of different audiences with powerful people. And here in Acts 25, just before we get into chapter 26... It says, um, this is, um, who is this speaking here? In verse 19, we've got King Agrippa, we've got Festus, we've got Bernice here. And uh, Festus is telling them about Paul. He says, they had some points of dispute with him, about, with Saul, or Paul, about their own religion and about a dead man named Jesus who Paul claimed was alive. So Paul is saying he's alive. And then Paul gets the opportunity to talk about all of this with the people that are there. And that's what's happening here in chapter uh, 26. Let's read through it and see what we can learn. Agrippa says to Paul, you have permission to speak for yourself. He motioned with his hand, began his defense, King Agrippa. 
I consider myself fortunate to stand before you today as I make my defense against all the accusations of the Jews, and especially so because you are well acquainted with all the Jewish customs and controversies. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. The Jewish people know all about the way I have lived since I was a child from the beginning of my life in my own country and also in Jerusalem. They have known me for a long time and can testify, if they are willing, that I conformed to the strictest sect of our religion, living as a Pharisee. And now it's because of my hope in what God has promised our ancestors that I am on trial today. This is the promise that our 12 tribes are hoping to see fulfilled as they earnestly serve God day and night. King Agrippa, it's because of this hope that these Jews are accusing me. Why should any of you consider it incredible that God raises the dead? I too was convinced that I ought to do all that was possible to oppose the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And that is just what I did in Jerusalem. On the authority of the chief priests, I put many of the Lord's people in prison. And when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. Many a time, I went from one synagogue to another to have them punished. And I tried to force them to blaspheme. I was so obsessed with persecuting them that I even hunted them down in foreign cities. On one of those journeys, I was going to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests. About noon, King Agrippa, as I was on the road, I saw a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, blazing around me and my companions. We all fell to the ground. I heard a voice saying to me in Aramaic, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? It's hard for you to kick against the goads. Then I asked, who are you, Lord? I am Jesus, whom you, you are persecuting, the Lord replied. Now get up, stand on your feet. I have appeared to you to appoint you as a servant and as a witness of what you have seen and will see of me. I will rescue you from your own people and from the Gentiles. I am sending you to them to open their eyes and turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God so that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. So then, King Agrippa, <coughs> I wasn't disobedient to the voice, to the vision from heaven, first to those in Damascus, then to those in Jerusalem and in, in all Judea and then to the Gentiles, I preached that they should repent and turn to God and demonstrate their repentance by their deeds. That is why some Jews seized me in the temple courts and tried to kill me. But God has helped me to this very day. So I stand here and testify to small and great alike I am saying nothing beyond what the prophets and Moses said would happen, that the Messiah would suffer and, as the first to rise from the dead, would bring the message of light to his own people and to the Gentiles. At this point, Festus interrupted Paul's defense. You are out of your mind, Paul. Your great learning is driving you insane. I am not insane, most excellent Festus. Paul replied, what I'm saying is true and reasonable. The king is familiar with these things and I can speak freely to him. I'm convinced that none of this has escaped his notice because it was not done in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know you do. Then Agrippa said to Paul, do you think that in such a short time you can persuade me 
to be a Christian? Paul replied, short time or long, I pray to God that not only you, but all who are listening to me today may become what I am, except for these chains. The king rose, and with him the governor and Bernice and those sitting with them. After they left the room, they began saying to one another, this man is not doing anything that deserves death or imprisonment. Agrippa said to Festus, this man could have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. And we'll stop there. So a question for you. What impact, reading this and thinking about what's happening here, what impact did seeing the risen, living Jesus have on Paul? From what we see in this passage, when he's talking about his experiences with King Agrippa here, what, is, what, what, what was it that seeing Jesus, how did that change Paul from what we see here? What did it cause him to be like, to act like? What impact did seeing the living, risen Jesus have on Paul? What would you say? What stands out to you? Should I give you a minute to think? Okay, I just gave everybody a minute to think. <laughs> Let's take a minute to think about it. Or look at it. You've got something already, yes. Um, I think we can realize that seeing the Lord is something that He didn't, right? Yes, so when he was persecuting the Christians, he was thinking he was on God's side. Okay, that's right. That changed this perspective. What else can we see in this passage? What, what difference does it make to Paul that he's seen the risen Christ? All right, a bit of a 180. Huge change of direction. Mm. Think about him before and after. He's, got, he's got a new goal for his life. He's got a new mission. He's got a new drive. Okay. Yep. He, he considers, he wants to rescue people. He wants to open their eyes from darkness to light. It's completely different mm -hmm. direction of his life, completely different language that he was using. Mm. Different language, different direction, different goal, yeah. different mission. He was always a man on a mission, wasn't he? Yeah. But the mission has changed. Mm. True. Anything else? There's a, a huge um, confidence mm. in everything that he says. Mm. Um, he doesn't shy away from addressing people of mm. authority. Yes very confidently, um, you know, it's like even he makes a reference to when the Jews seized him and tried to kill him, you know, mm. we know that he's gone through some incredibly challenging times, but that has not dampened that confidence. Mm. Yes, the confidence Christ, is still there. But also that confidence in his, his faith and what it's built mm. on. So even when he turns to King Agrippa, you know, to say things like, do you believe, I know you do, you know, he, he's just total confidence mm. in what, what he is saying. Such confidence. Mm. It, it's, it's compelling, isn't it? Yeah. And connected with that, something that struck me, again, just reading it just now, actually, 
was, uh, and I've lost the spot, but something about when it's small and great. Where is that small and great or small people? I testify, verse 22, that's it. Yeah. I stand here and testify to small and great alike. And I was thinking about the impact that would have on, because there would have been slaves present. Yeah. And thinking, okay, this is a message for everybody. And thinking about the king thinking, yes, I'm the great, or am I? Hang on. I mean, there might have been that thought in his mind. Who is the small and who is the great? And everybody needs this message. This isn't just for you, Agrippa. Uh, Leon? Well, on that, related to that, I think he's quite sort of compassionate and gracious. Yes. Because he's saying... Okay. Yes. Well, the it's a bit of humour there, don't you think? <laughs> yeah. He is. I mean, even though Agrippa could set him free, or but he, but I'm going to offer you. I want to give you what you need. Yeah. Yeah, Patricia. Trust in God, yes. Sense that God is real to him, right? God is present with him. You get that feeling very strongly. He's dependent upon God, relying on him for his strength. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah. Anything else? Joe? He was um, very calm. And when he started um, talking, he did not go off in a tangent like Mm. I maybe would have done. But he spoke to the king in respect, like almost like sweetening him, but just letting the king know, like, King, I know who you are, I know your authority mm. that you mm. have, blah, 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 this is it. But this is why I'm here, and this is the road I'm going. Because so, yes. he had all the knowledge, he had all the knowledge of the Bible, he knew the Old Testament uh, from, from back to front, he knew all of that. And then all of a sudden, when seeing Jesus, he realized, okay. This has come alive. The Old Testament has come alive. My understanding of the Old Testament now has changed. Yes. Because now I know who this Messiah is that is written by all the prophets beforehand, and he's seen the light. Mm. But just that he's so calm, totally opposite from me. Very calm, very collected, very respectful, but clear. Yes, Dan. I think he turned from a violent man to a very non-violent man. Hmm. Um, it strikes me as the kind of person to punish, then ask questions later. <laughs> and he could have right. been up the crisis as well. He could have been, you know, got the wrong end of the stick, you know, and go, okay, so, okay, so now we're on your side, Jesus. But again, at knife point, you could pick up a question. Right. Now he's, he's using words, not violence. Yes. He's trying to. Yes, words are his in, weapons. He's but, trying to influence mm. people based on his experience. This is real. Um, so it's a complete change of character yes. uh, in terms of the tools he's using are different. Yes. He's not using violence and brawn. And his, yeah. his power, in sense, his, yeah. his own power in terms of his authority and what he thinks of God. It's a very good point. God's authority. Yes. And he's now a servant of that God's authority. Uh, and comfortable, in a sense, being in chains. Mm. 
yeah. instead of being the one with the power to put others in chains. That's a huge that's, that's, I mean, that's change. The irony, that, that is our That's a paradoxical, really. Yeah. Way, yeah. people in chains. And now God's allowed him to feel what it's like to be in those chains. Yes. And all he has now is his, is his words. His conviction. His experience. Mm. Mm. So it's extremely humbling for him, but he's embracing that, that journey. He's embracing, you know, th there must be some compassion for the fact that he, people have died as account of him. Mm. And now, mm. you know, it, there's two things going on here for me. There's Paul's learning, mm -hmm. and there's the bigger picture. Right. What he's using Paul to for. Mm. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Do His testimony is what he puts out there. Yeah. That's where he starts. It, in the presence of people who have the power of life or death yeah. over him, just like Jesus, yeah. indeed, in many ways. Okay, a few thoughts, and then a couple of things for us to think about. Um, that's really helpful, what we've been sharing about there. There's so much we see here. Um, Paul's humility stands out. He's happy to be in chains. Um, he would rather not be in chains. But if it takes chains to get this message across, he's okay with that. Um, the humility that goes with that, the, the, the boldness and the courage that go with this, I feel a sense of urgency is there with him. You know, today, today, you know, do you think you can, Agrippa picks this up, do you think you can make me a, a Christian this quickly? It's like, well, yeah, I mean, that's what you want. Uh, you get that sense of urgency, not panic, because there is a peace, a calm about him, but an urgency. You get that feeling? Uh, you get the feeling of um, uh, his willingness to take a risk for what he believes. He's, when he was the one in power, there was really no risk persecuting Christians. Now he takes these risks of remaining in chains, of uh, continuing to talk about the thing that got him in trouble in the first place in front of influential people who had the power to get him killed. He's changed his religion, he's changed his belief system, he's risking his future, his livelihood. He doesn't know where his next money is, is coming from. Um, we have many, many reasons to admire uh, him and his convictions. But this all came because he was utterly convinced he had seen a resurrected Jesus. It came from that. It wasn't just an intellectual thing. He really, it, he believed it. It was a deep conviction. Only that would motivate someone like Paul to make a change like that. And so I would like us to um, contemplate two things. When we think about what does the resurrection mean for you and I today? What does it mean to be people who believe in a risen Christ? What does it mean? So I'm going to suggest two things today. Uh, the first is confidence, and the second is motivation. That believing in a resurrected Christ gives us confidence and also motivates us to certain actions. And so under the theme of confidence, first of all, uh, knowing that Jesus has risen from the dead gives us confidence in Jesus. And this is important because we need to have confidence in Jesus, not in 
um, a theory of Christianity or something, or Christendom or, or churchianity. It's, it's about Jesus. And why do we have confidence in Jesus? Because he predicted his resurrection in Mark chapter 9. The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. They will kill him, and after three days, he will rise. So he knows the future. He knows his destiny. He knows what God's plan is. Therefore, we have confidence. We don't know about tomorrow. We don't know about the tomorrow for our children, for our families, for our health situations. We don't know, but Jesus does know what's coming, and he's got it in hand. We don't need to fear the future. So we trust Jesus. And that's also important because, I don't know about you, but sometimes I have a difficulty obeying the teachings of Jesus. Some of the teachings of Jesus are nice and lovely. I like them. Some are much more difficult. Self-sacrifice and loving your enemies and uh, praying for people who persecute you. Or There are many things that are harder. But, but the resurrection means we trust him. And that really helps us in our Christian life. The second thing is prayer. Um, the, res the reality of the resurrection means that we have confidence in prayer because Jesus is there to intercede for us. In Hebrews chapter 7, <clears throat> he lives forever. Because he lives forever, he's able to save completely those to who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them. So when we pray, Jesus intercedes. When we pray, it's like he tunes in. It means not that he doesn't ever tune, doesn't ever tune out. But in a sense that our, our prayers have that channel to God because he's alive and lives. Why does he live? To intercede for us. So we, give, we have confidence in what we pray about. And then thirdly, our eternal destiny. Because Jesus rose from the dead, he's led the way, going where we are going to go. And we have confidence about that eternal destiny because he's gone on before us in advance. That's the passage in 1 Thessalonians 4 that we won't read all of now. But that's why we have confidence we will be with the Lord forever. I would say those three things are really important in the Christian life. To have confidence in Jesus, to have confidence in prayer, and to have confidence about our eternal destiny makes a huge difference then to how we live if we really have that confidence. But that confidence doesn't come because it's a good idea. That confidence in those three things comes because Jesus is risen from the dead. That's the first thing. The second thing is motivation. Um, the resurrection is one of the key things that motivates us. We put the heart and the head together here in motivation. Um, you can tell when someone is motivated. And that is true of children, teenagers, preteens. You can see, tell when they're motivated for certain things like when the dinner gong goes or, uh, or things like that, right? So there are certain things. But the truth is, adults also, you can tell when adults are motivated. Uh, we can tell when our colleagues at work are motivated and when they're not. And we can tell all kinds of things about ourselves and our favorite television program is about to come on. And we get very motivated about being in the right place at the right time. Motivation is a big, big deal. Two things about motivation. If we're going to hang on for the long haul in the Christian life, we need to be consistently motivated to follow Jesus. We need motivation, or we might say inspiration. Um, it's, it's, being a Christian is not a uh, flash in the plan thing, pan thing. It doesn't just, um, you become a Christian and that lasts you for the next 30 years. It's a following, isn't it? It's a discipleship. It's, it's a following the master. And so we need that. Um, motivation to follow and, and the resurrection is part of that I know there's a lot of words on the screen but this is Romans 6 it's one of my favourite passages 
We were buried in Christ, baptized into his death, buried with him to have a new life. We have this new life, and if we've been united with him in a death like this in baptism, we will certainly also be united with him in a resurrection like his. This all goes together, the baptism, the resurrection goes together. Our old self was crucified, the old body of sin dealt with, we were slaves to sin, we're now set free from sin. If we died with Christ, we believe that we also will live with him. For we know that since Christ was raised from the dead, he cannot die again. Death no longer has mastery over him. The death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So he lives to God. And that's our inspiration, that we now live to God because of what Christ has done for us. So we're motivated to follow and we're motivated to persuade. Just like Paul is doing in Acts chapter 26. He was motivated to persuade intimidating people because he knew that Christ was risen from the dead. A lot of our our confidence in our evangelism must not be because we think we have the right words or because we know a few scriptures or because we have an idea of what Jesus is like. That's not the foundation of our confidence. The foundation of our confidence in sharing about Jesus with people is that he rose from the dead. That's our key motivation. As we see, Paul talks about in 2 Corinthians 5, since we know what it is to fear the Lord, we try to persuade others. What we are plain is plain to God. I hope it's also plain to your conscience. We're not trying to commend ourselves uh, or take pride in us. Uh, it's, it's for God. For Christ's love compels us because we're convinced that one died for all, and therefore all died, and he died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. It's the resurrection that motivates our attempts to persuade people to follow Jesus. So, simple four things. Following, persuading, um, because death has no power over, (coughs) over Christ anymore. And we have confidence in our Christian walk and we have motivation to help others because death couldn't hold on to Jesus. It couldn't hold on. It's a bit like that bar of slippery soap that you can't really get a hold of. It's like death was like, come on, I want him, I want him. But death couldn't hold on to him. This passage in Acts 2, Paul's preaching and he says, this man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge. And you with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. And so we celebrate Easter because death had no hold on him. And we have confidence in our Christian life And we have motivation to live a life of discipleship and persuade other people because he's risen from the dead. Because death has no power over him. And we're going to take bread and wine now. And we're going to take those symbols of his body and his blood as a reminder that death found it impossible to hold on to him. And thus, death will find it impossible to hold on to you and me. And we will die like Jesus died. But beyond that, we then 
live the life that he now lives forever with him. His resurrected existence will be ours because death found it impossible to hold on to him. Let's pray before we take some bread and wine. Father, we want to thank you that Jesus was willing to be handed over, to be handed over to the Roman authorities, to the Jewish authorities, to be handed over to those who would beat him and place a crown of thorns on his head, ultimately then nail him to a cross. Thank you that he loved us so much that he was willing to do that and that it shows us how much he trusted you, trusting that you would vindicate his sacrifice and give him the new life that you had promised. Father, help us to trust you the way that Jesus trusts you. Help us to surrender our lives willingly for the benefit of others, for the sake of the gospel, for the saving of many. Father, help us to have confidence in our Christian life, that you answer prayers. Help us to have the motivation to try and persuade other people because of what Jesus has done, that it is real that he's risen from the dead. We thank you so much that we can come together to celebrate by taking this bread and wine. We pray as we do so that it would strengthen us in our faith to live for you, to trust you, and to serve others on your behalf. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.